And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Andrew Cuomo began his career four decades ago as a young campaign manager and brash political enforcer for his father, the late New York Governor Mario Cuomo. In a long career as an advocate for the homeless, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, New York State Attorney General, and now a three-term holder of the office in which his dad once served, Cuomo is one of the nation's senior governors and a familiar face in the battle against COVID-19. I sat down with him this week to talk about the election, the virus, and his new book, American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. And one programming note, we will be taking Monday off, but back next Thursday with a new episode of The Axe Files. And now, my conversation with Governor Andrew Cuomo. Governor Cuomo, it's uh, good to be with you, old friend. Good to hear your voice again. Uh, Thank you for joining me. We both were, uh, to use a phrase more common in New York than elsewhere, fetching a little bit uh, before we started about how wearying it's been, this long stretch of politics and the virus. But you're having to gear up again now uh, for round two with the coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, Well, first, David, let me thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to hear your voice. And uh, we've had the opportunity to work together in the past, and uh, you are still the best in my book. <laughs> Thank uh, you. And I, I know that uh, you you were very, very helpful to me, and, and I learned a lot from you. Thank uh, you. Yeah, the, you know, it's a good news, bad news situation. Uh, we're going to have a new president. That's great. There's a vaccine on the horizon. That's great. Uh, but we have to get there. You are going to see a serious second wave of this. Uh, COVID virus. It's not really a second wave, by the way. They call it second wave. Second wave was when the virus mutated. We're still battling the first wave. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that is going up. Uh, the nation hit a new record today. Uh, new York State is relatively doing very well. We are the third lowest state in the nation. Only Vermont and Maine are below us in infection rate, believe it or not. Uh, so we've, we've been very diligent, but you're going to see that go up. There's no doubt. You know, you mentioned the, uh, the vaccine and the new president, neither are going to be here for a while. Um, we have this interim period, uh, where the vaccine goes through its final phases and manufacturing begins, and it's going to be months and months and months before people get it. And then you've got this other issue, which is we have a new president. Um, most people recognize that. And he has a, a new uh, coronavirus task force assembled. But it's not clear that they have anybody to work with uh, on the other side. And how damaging is that? You know, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up, David. You know, governors, we tend to get uh, practical and granular, right? Because yes. that's the business we're in. We're in the uh, day-to-day uh, business. Uh, it's actually, to put an exclamation point on what you said, 
the I think President Biden, President-elect Biden made the right move in uh, putting scientists on an advisory board, sending the signal that it's going to be about science, not politics. But the Trump administration right now is designing the vaccination program. Uh, and President-elect Biden doesn't become president until January 20. They're going to put this vaccination plan in place. Uh, I'm fighting with them right now. I'm also the chairman of the National Governors Association this year. But they're going to repeat every mistake they made on COVID from day one. Uh, they want to do a vaccination plan that is basically distributed through the private health care network. Yeah, but that leaves out the black and brown communities where we've had the highest infection rate, the highest mortality rate, uh, and they are healthcare deserts. Uh, now, government could, my state government could supplement efforts in those communities, but I would need funding to do that. Uh, and that's not in Trump's plan. So that's going to be a problem. And that assumes that they operationally understand what they're talking about. Just to give you an idea of the magnitude of this scale, we have done COVID testing all across the nation at full bore, okay? New York State does more testing pro rata than any state on the in the nation. To date, eight months, we've done 120 million COVID tests. Nasal swab goes to the lab. We have to do 330 million vaccinations. How long is that going to take? Yeah. I've done 12 million COVID tests. I have to do 20 million vaccinations. How long is that going to take? Do you have a sense of that? Well, it depends what they're, the, the way Trump wants to design it, the pharmaceutical companies would distribute it, he says, through the military, through the generals. They'd use FedEx and another commercial company. It would go to the hospitals, it would go to the drug chains, and they think uh, the public would just come in and receive uh, the vaccine. The volume is way too high for it to happen that way. You're going to need a government organized effort. Uh, I would use the National Guard. I would use uh, my healthcare staff to go into low-income communities, public housing projects, faith-based organizations. But uh, best case scenario, it has to take four, five, six months if it takes a day to get to everyone. Uh, I mean, just from what I read about the nature of this vaccine, it requires uh, extraordinary refrigeration, um, 90 below or something, it has to be stored at. Um, I don't know, Federal Express probably doesn't have that capacity. Um, and so, you know, there are all kinds of questions here. Does it bother you at all that he just wiped out the entire leadership of the Pentagon uh, at a time when they're trying to put this together? Uh, you know, David, I have run the course with this president. I've been fighting him for four years. Uh, I've sued him on almost every policy ground. I tried over the past year to work with him. I tried. I bit my tongue. Uh, I tried to be gracious. I tried to be cooperative. Uh, it's it's him. It's just him. I don't know that the Pentagon... Uh, moves will actually hurt the uh, vaccine plan that they're developing, because I think the vaccine plan they're developing is basically unworkable anyway. Uh, but this is just, 
it's just Trump, right? This is his personality. It's his persona. You've known for a long time, right? I, 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 you were in the real estate law business for a brief time in the 80s. Uh, so you must have come across Trump then. Oh, I knew Trump from New York. Uh, he donated to my campaign. He supported my father's campaign when he was governor. Uh, the Trump family did a fundraiser for me. I've been at social events with him. No, I, I knew him from New York. And, uh, you know, he was an eccentric character all, always. Uh, but uh, uh, as president, I think the pressure actually took that eccentricity and exploded it. I want to talk about him more in a second. Just one more thing, uh, uh, well, a couple more things relative to the virus. We haven't seen a stimulus in months. Um, and there was a stalemate in Congress, uh, between Congress and the White House uh, over the stimulus. Do you anticipate, and I guess I'm asking you with your Governor's Association hat on, but do you anticipate Anything happening between now and January 20th on on the stimulus? I don't. Uh, they're talking about a watered-down package and then coming back and doing a full package later on. Uh, my guess is that doesn't happen. My guess is they're now going to wait to see what happens with the uh, Georgia Senate races. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't see where Senator McConnell is going to want to push his uh, ultra-conservative wing uh, to come to an agreement now. Uh, so I don't see it happening. And I don't know that that is uh, so bad. It's a practical uh, pain in the neck uh, for states that are have hemorrhaged funding and can't pay their bills. Uh, but I've been in that situation for a long time. Uh, I'd rather see uh, Biden come in and do the right package and put stimulus together with infrastructure uh, and do it right once rather than cobble something together, you know. Do you have any concerns that if the Georgia races don't go uh, the Democratic way, and it's an uphill fight in those states in a in a runoff situation to get the kind of turnout you saw uh, for Biden in this last election, if those go down and you've got Republican control of the Senate, what are the implications of that for the kind of stimulus that you think is necessary and the kind of infrastructure bill and, and uh, that you think is necessary? I think the Republicans, even if we lose Georgia, I think the Republicans have been chastened here. Uh, and I think the Republican irritant is gone with Trump. Uh, Trump made it harder for the Republicans to compromise. You know, uh, I talk to Republican governors all day long. Uh, all the states have a financial problem. All the states uh, are long overdue for infrastructure projects. Uh, there is consensus to be reached here uh, without even uh, bending over backwards at compromise. Uh, every economist will say, if you don't have a stimulus and you now starve state and local governments and you force me to lay off workers, it's going to hurt the overall economy and it could drive you into a recession. And you want me to fire essential workers just when we're undertaking this ambitious vaccination program? Uh, no, I don't think it makes any sense. And I think the Republicans uh, understand that uh, and understand what happened in the election. And I think they'll know that they have to move forward 
uh, and a stimulus with infrastructure, with good jobs, with a green component. Uh, I think they agree. You're not a guy who's given to giddy optimism, uh, just from our experiences together. You say, well, you know, with Trump gone and he's been an irritant. What makes you think Trump is going? I mean, he's obviously going to go from the White House, but it feels like he's just going to move his act down the street and continue to try and marshal his base. You know, he had a, other than Trump himself, the Republicans had a pretty good day on Tuesday, and they had a good day because he whipped uh, his base up. They had a really big turnout. You saw it in New York. You've, you know, you you lost some races there. Um, What makes you think that the fear factor, the grip that he's had on the base of that party doesn't continue to give him leverage uh, in um, or anybody else who's trying to seize control of that base uh, to try and stop that uh, kind of progress. Yeah, I agree that the Trump base, let's call it, uh, if you want to say it's an evolution of that Tea Party, but that Trump base yeah. uh, is going to be a powerful force uh, within the Republican Party on an ongoing basis. Uh, Trump, however, on the elected officials was very forceful. You know, he was a chief executive, David, like you and I have never experienced before. Uh, Everything was leverage. Everything was extortion. Uh, This was a chief executive. That White House would call up a governor and say, if you don't do this, uh, then you won't get X. You know, uh, they took... Uh, the bully pulpit and leverage to an entirely new level. And I know from governors I've spoken with, they said, look, you know, I would love to do this, but uh, the White House let me know that uh, I'll be persona non grata. And persona non grata was a very heavy penalty in the Trump administration. Yeah, but it wasn't just persona non grata in terms of things they wanted to get done. It, It was persona non grata in that you become the target of a tweet. Uh, you, you become the target of a primary challenge. I mean, wh- why did Lindsey Graham go from calling Trump uh, a, a menace and a threat and an imbecile to his greatest cheerleader? Because he knew that he had to survive in South Carolina and he'd be knocked out in a primary if he didn't play ball. And that continues to be leverage, it seems to me, for Trump with a bunch of these Republicans. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. You're not, the, the basic political force of the base will remain. My point is uh, Trump was an accelerant uh, mm-hmm. and an aggravating factor in that uh, he would make a phone call twice a day and remind you of it. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. It wasn't just the abstract fear uh, when you're running for re-election. Uh, he might come in. He called you twice a day to remind you. Talk to me about about what Democrats should be thinking about, how they should evaluate these election results. Joe Biden won, and uh, that was a huge, obviously a huge victory for uh, for Democrats. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, underneath, Republicans had a much better day than anybody anticipated uh, in terms of picking up you know, 10 seats in the House. Looks like they may be able to hang on to the Senate. Uh, state legislative chambers, you know, it, 
you were hoping to to make some gains and in there were six states where it was thought the chambers would flip and uh they actually gained three and held on to those six in a reapportionment year it was a pretty good year for uh for republicans other than at the very top of the ticket and there may be some of them who are relieved at that result although they can't say it so what what kind of soul searching do democrats have to do no you're exactly right look i think there's there's no doubt uh if if you want to uh truly look in the mirror that the democratic party had a message here also uh that they have to receive uh we should have done better we just should have done better and part of it was our own internal uh machinations i think uh uh, um, law and order, being supportive of public safety, being supportive of the police. Uh, we had mixed messages on that, and I think that that hurt us. Uh, I think there is a fear that the Democratic Party is going too far, uh, and that's alienating certain voters. Uh, we didn't address that well either. Uh, I think that's that has to be addressed and we have to be honest about that i think long term ultimate vindication will come if the democrats and president biden can make the government work and actually accomplish real progress i think it's very simple at the end of the day as complicated as we make it it's very simple uh and it's what i try to do in new york make a difference in people's lives, period. Forget all the words. If you can make a difference in their life and it's a positive difference and they feel it and they see it, uh, that's what the Democratic Party is all about. You know, I passed free college tuition. We didn't talk about it and you pass it, you do it, you're your child now can go to school, uh, college tuition free, $15 minimum wage, $9 to $15, totally changes your lifestyle. Uh, marriage equality, true equality, civil rights. We have to make a difference. And that's my argument with Democrats, you know. Uh, focus on what you can get done and do it. And when government fails, David, conservatives win. When government fails, conservatives win. Because the macro argument is binary. The conservatives are saying, look, this thing called government, it makes no sense. It never works. They have these ideas. They want to do housing for everybody. They build public housing projects uh, that destroy communities. They want to help poor people. They do welfare. Uh, they argue amongst themselves. Nothing ever happens. That's the conservatives' argument. Prove them wrong. Prove them wrong. Prove that you can make a positive difference and it can actually work and you can build a bridge. And look, it stands up. It doesn't fall down. And by the way, it was on time and it was on budget. And we built a new airport. How beautiful. And it helps our economy. Uh, that you can do these things and they're real. That's how you beat the conservatives. You want to call them Republicans. You want to call them Trump base, whatever you want to call them. 
But that's the fundamental conflict that we have been engaged in and we have still not succeeded, right? That's why we keep going back to FDR. When was there a time when government really produced and really made a difference and you could be proud of it? Uh, we have to focus on that. And I think, I think Joe Biden can do that. Look, if he does a stimulus and he puts it together with a smart infrastructure plan and you see jobs and you see trades, people working again, and you see airports and you see bridges and new train stations, uh, we hadn't, we're building an airport in New York. You know, we haven't built a new airport in this nation in 20 years. Yeah, well, you guys needed I mean, one. Look, that 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 airport is a mess. I think Joe Biden was right when he said it was a it was third world airport. So it's about time, man. I'm glad you're. I say that as a native of New York, but I know. Um, but David, it's the first in 20 years. Yeah. Just think about that. You fly all over the world. You have these beautiful airports, and entertainment center, malls, business centers, and we haven't built one in 20 years. So you wrote this book, uh, you have a new book called American Crisis Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic, and I, I want to ask you more about that in a bit. But in it, you, you, you address this point that you just addressed, and you said if people want to be celebrities, they should go into show business. If they want to be advocates, they should join an advocacy organization. Progressives in government must be dedicated to achieving progress, otherwise they're really only bolstering the conservative cause. Who are you talking about? I mean, you've got, you've got maybe the most... Uh, uh, prominent young progressive in the country as an elected official in in your state, uh, AOC, uh, and uh, and she just she's been in a long distance exchange with uh, some of her colleagues over the outcome of this election because some of her colleagues said a bit of what you just said, which is you know what let us not let us not use the word socialist. Let us not be talking about defunding police. Uh, let us not talk about... Uh, now, you did ban fracking in New York, but that became controversial in some parts of the country. Um, and we're a big, diverse country. You know, people represent different interests. Um, who Was she who you were talking about? Who were you talking about? And what do you think about that debate? Yeah. No, I wasn't talking about uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez at all. Here's... I think there was a, the, the debate and the moment come together. COVID should be a transformational moment in this nation. Uh, why? Because what COVID showed was there is actually a functionality to government. Government actually has a job. It's not just a political parlor game. It makes a difference, and it can make the difference between life and death. And it is an art form, and you have to know how to do it. There is something to a skill level in government. It's not just that anyone can do it. You know, when we have a diminished view of government, disrespect for government, uh, we think anyone can do it. Well, like Donald Trump. Uh, yeah. Well, has he ever any government experience? No. Any policy experience? No. But anybody can do it. It's the only occupation, David. Uh, can anybody fly a plane? No, no, no. You need a license. Can anyone operate on a No, no. You need a license. Can anyone be a veterinarian? No. Can anyone be a plumber? No. You have to be licensed. Can anyone be governor? Yes. Anybody can be governor. 
You don't need a license. You don't need any credential. You don't need any experience. Baloney. It was untrue. You don't need a license or experience or credentials until you do, until you need to perform. What happened with COVID was Trump and the White House did not know where they were. And they failed because it wasn't about celebrity and it wasn't about public relations. It was about government and policy and uh, respect for the position and the full uh, power of the position. And they failed. And they never said they knew how to govern. They never said they wanted to govern. It was all a political public relations fiasco. Government matters and leadership matters. And government is not just advocacy. Uh, that plays into the conservatives. We should do this, we should do this, we should do this, but we never wind up doing anything. I know, and that's why I'm a conservative. And I argue you Democrats are all full of baloney because you never get anything done. You just talk and talk and talk. Competence matters. Leadership matters. Skill matters. It's, there's a line between politics and government. Uh, and government is a skill set. And if you want to be in government, know what you are doing. You want to make change? Know how to make change. Otherwise, be an advocate. There is this tension between you know, the ideal and the ideals, ideals are worth fighting for. The ideal that everyone should have health care uh, that they can afford. Uh, the ideal uh, that, you know, everyone should get an education uh, if, they want, if they want one and if they're willing to work uh, uh, through, through the education. Uh, you know, th th there are a series of things that, that everyone should, should be able to support their family if they're working a 40-hour work week and... Um, you know, there are these ideals, um, and the frustration you hear from, you know, from, from, from the left is uh, that, you know, these ideals get compromised down, that we never get to the final state because we make incremental process, uh, progress. You know, my sense is that is, the, that, is a, that is how progress is made in a democracy. Um, we're a big, diverse country, and you do have to compromise but there's also a frustration uh, that uh, is understandable but how do you reconcile those two things look i understand the the socratic debate if it is incremental for the sake of incremental i am against it if it is incremental because of lack of political will i am against it uh, and it i find that frustrating if it is gradual because it is not possible otherwise, I support it. Uh, and that is, and knowing the difference is, a, is the sophisticated art form we're talking about here. Uh, and I think many people just don't know the difference, right? Uh, I did free college tuition. I had to phase it in because I couldn't afford it in one year. So I phased it in over three years, but then we have free college tuition, $15 minimum wage, highest minimum wage uh, in the country. Uh, but 
I needed to give businesses notice, so I had to phase it in over two years. Well, I want it tomorrow. I know, but that's not possible. It's not that I'm weak of spine or ideology. It's not possible. We'll bankrupt the businesses and and, then nobody gets $15. Uh, but that le- that is a level of sophistication that we should have if yeah. you want to have this debate, David. Yeah, beyond which, if you're in a divided legislative setting, there is going to have to be uh, compromise. I mean, I know how we, we fought hard for uh, a public option in the Affordable Care Act when I was in the White House, um, and there were a lot of... Uh, folks on the left who are unhappy that we couldn't get it. We couldn't get it, by the way, not just because Republicans opposed it, but there were several Democrats who opposed it. Um, And, uh, you know, I think all the time about what would we, how I would have faced the people who, the 20 million people who have insurance today or people with pre-existing conditions uh, if we had decided not to move forward because we couldn't get everything that we wanted. Um. That that would have been a terrible dereliction, but it's but it's the debate uh, that we we seem to be within within the within the uh, the party beyond which um, it, it turns out that socialism is not a very popular concept in this country. Uh, it, it it you know it it turns out that people want to be able to call the police when they have an emergency. Um, you know. There are, you know, there there are these clashing symbols and language and so on that I think Trump is really great at. Invo- you know, Trump for all of the ridicule that he took, and and I probably engaged in some of it for this barnstorming and these rallies and some of the crazy stuff that he said. He does know how to brand things, and he branded this socialism thing, and he branded this defund police thing even though Joe Biden represented none of that. Uh, but it did, stick to some Demo- it did stick to some Democrats, and it did hurt the Democratic Party in various places. And, you know, that, that has to be said. No, exactly, look, I agree 100%. Trump is an excellent marketing man. That's what he is. He's a marketing man. Uh, you mentioned LaGuardia Airport. There's been a plane that was parked at LaGuardia Airport for years, never moved. It said Trump all across the big letters, Trump. And the plane just sat there on the tarmac and he paid to leave the plane there. But the plane never flew. And I said to someone at the airport, I said, why does he pay to park the plane right there in front of everyone? Never flies. He said, oh, it's just a billboard for everyone to know he has a big plane, but the plane doesn't fly. You know, he's, a, he's always been a marketing man. Yeah. We. We handed it to him, David. Defund the police. That is not a good expression. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No police? So when someone is breaking into my house, I dial 911 and nothing happens? You know, that, of course he seized on it. But, you know, we also handed it to him. And we didn't even mean defund. We didn't even mean no. defund the police, right? No, no, no. No, and and the fact of the matter is that you know there are reforms in policing and and rethinking of what the what 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 we should 
reasonably ask police to be doing as opposed to other people, you know, mental health experts and social workers and, you know, there there are all kinds of things to be thought through, but defunding the police is never, that's not really, I mean, there may be some people who believe that's a good idea, but very few, uh, I think. And look, your point is right. You know what I started in this state? I said, look, the point has come to restructure public safety. Mr. Floyd, we had Eric Garner in this state. You can go back to 20 years, Abner Louima, Rodney King, police abuse cases. Uh, the time has come. The public has said enough is enough. And what we did is I mandated every local government with a police force, you engage the community, you have a collaborative, and you restructure your public safety department. How many police, how many mental health workers, how many social service people? Mm -hmm. uh, not every 911 call is responded to with a gun. Right. Uh, the answer to every 911 call is not an arrest. Redesign your public safety department community by community. That was the smart answer, right? Uh, the logical answer. But defund the police was a very unfortunate expression. Yeah. I mean, I know what it was born of, but it, it, it truly was. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. I can't, uh, I can't have you here and not ask you a little bit about your own journey, because that's what I do on this podcast. Um, and I want to, you, you talk about politics being an art, uh, being, you know, it, it requires uh, a certain uh, skill set and, and experience. You kind of grew up in it. Uh, you know, no secret that you were a second-generation governor, uh, but your dad wasn't in politics for your a lot of your formative years. That came later when you were a teenager. Uh, talk to me about your dad, Mario Cuomo, and, and your folks, your mom, Matilda, and growing up and how— uh, and and how how he emerged in this— as you say, art form? Well, my father was an anomaly. Uh, he was not a politician. He was never a politician. Uh, as you said, he was a practicing lawyer. He got involved with a lot of community issues and then uh, wound up running uh, later in life uh, relatively, uh, but was never a part of a democratic club. Uh, mm -hmm. He ran against the party machine uh, and uh, was a lieutenant governor and then uh, governor. And he he very much did it as an art form. My father was very intellectual, uh, cerebral. You would say, David, if you were designing a position for him, he should be a, a U.S. senator. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought he should be a Supreme Court judge because— So did Bill Clinton. He, yes. He loved the debate. He loved the analysis. Uh, he loved the uh, provocation. Uh, he did not like the day-to-day -day management and operation. He did not like the compromise with the legislature mm -hmm. uh, and the back and forth with the uh, 
a legislative body uh, seeking compromise with 200 people. Frankly, he just didn't have the patience for it. Um, but he was beautiful. I mean, he uh, he would he said people would say he gives his speeches. He's known for his oratory. Uh, he had an ability to use the English language to paint the picture uh, that could appeal to the best in people and develop support and educate and motivate at the same time. And he he did it like very few people did it. I mean, I was in the I, audience in 1984 when he gave his famous um, keynote address at the Democratic Convention, and it was. It was uh, it was just really really a remarkable thing to be sitting there in two thousand and four when uh, Barack Obama gave his in Boston. Um, I I turned to Robert Gibbs, my colleague, and I said, "His life is going to change forever now." And uh, and the reason I knew was because I saw how transformative. Uh, your father's speech was there, but let, let me ask you a question about your, your own relationship with him. You know, I did a podcast with your brother, Chris, who's a colleague of mine at CNN, wonderful colleague of mine, and he talked about the fact that, you know, your dad wasn't around that much, that he worked really, really hard when he was a lawyer, and then, you know, when he was in public life, and, you know, Chris said, you, you were you were the guy who taught him how to throw a ball, and you were the guy who kind of did the things that fathers do. You're 13 years uh, older than he is. Um, and it's it just reading about you and reading what you've written and knowing you, it it seems like you your relationship to him was almost forged later around these campaigns in which you were involved as a young man. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And I think uh, what Chris said to you uh, is the bookend to that. My father was not around. He was a workaholic to a, to a different level than you or I have ever experienced. Literally, uh, you didn't see him. He was gone from the house before I went to school and he came home uh, after I went to bed. The deal with my mother was he would be home Sunday at seven o'clock at night for dinner once a week. That was the arrangement. And he never made it at seven o'clock. Uh, so he was... Uh, he was gone a lot. I think I became involved in his campaigns in some ways as a way to get close to him and uh, learn about him because either you were in his world or you didn't exist. You know, uh, I felt that absence as a son, and that's why I made a special effort with Chris uh, that I wanted to be there for Chris, you know. Uh, my father wasn't there to do the things uh, for me. You know, there were no ball games. There was no little league. There was none of that. Uh, I wanted to make sure Chris uh, Chris had someone with him. I used to say to Chris, uh, Mom took me to a uh, Boy Scout meeting, and I was the only boy there with his mother in the Boy Scout meeting. And I was a little embarrassed. And I said to Chris, you'll never be, mom will never have to take you to a Boy Scout meeting. Now, Chris never became a Boy Scout. <laughs> Nothing about him would fit being a Boy Scout. And he violated but probably every <laughs> But I was ready to take him if he wanted to go. 
So your dad, your dad ran for mayor in 1977. I remember that race well. He ran against Ed Koch, who was an, who became an iconic figure in New York City politics. He got elected lieutenant governor. Then he ran against Koch again for governor in 1982, and it was kind of a you know viewed as a David and Goliath sort of race uh, because Koch was by then a titanic figure. Um, your dad, did he, uh, I, I want to get back to your role in that race, but did he relish the, that David and Goliath thing? No, he thought he had no option. He was the sitting Lieutenant governor. The position for governor became open. This the governor at the time was Hugh Carey. He supported Ed Koch. Uh, my father was sitting Lieutenant governor. It was sort of up or out David, right? You know, uh-huh. uh, he had no choice. And that gave him, it was a certain liberation because when, when you don't second guess the decision, it's a lot easier. He had no choice. It was up or out. So he ran, but it was uh, a terrible, hard, hard race. Uh, Koch was the, not only a Titanic force, national voice, and he was going to be president. Uh, He was the overwhelming uh, democratic endorsed candidate. We had a run against the party. First poll, 37 points down to Ed Koch. Yeah, plus uh, or minus four. Yeah, plus <laughs> or minus four, which didn't even matter. When it's 37, I don't care what the margin of error is. <laughs> you ran it, though. You were 24, and you effectively ran uh, that campaign. Um, how, how did you, as a 24-year-old, know what the hell you were doing? Well, first, I had run, my father had run, as you mentioned, in a few campaigns before. So I had been involved since the time I was about 16, 17, 18, different roles in different campaigns. Uh, so I, I had some knowledge from the past campaigns. And it was such a crazy race that my father took on that no credible person <laughs> would go near it. <laughs> Uh, it was back to life as options, you know. It was me or my mother. <laughs> so you you uh, you flipped a coin, and it turned out to be you, huh? I lost, and he won. And you went to Albany as a a dollar a day advisor, but you were known as the sort of enforcer. You were the you got you got a reputation there for being sort of brash and arrogant and uh, and tough in ways that weren't entirely flattering. Was that fair? Well, it's probably because I was brash and arrogant and tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny how those things those things go around. Yeah. yeah. Now, part of it is also the role, right? I was the campaign manager against the Democratic Party, which, you know, we were the uh, challenger to the Democratic Party and how dare you and, uh, you know, that whole uh, just the, the irritant to the party mechanism. And a campaign manager is a tough role, and especially in that situation. And if, you, if you're not tough, you're not doing the job, frankly. I then became transition director. Uh, and transition director, my father was taking over. He had been lieutenant governor to the preceding governor. So the assumption was the administration would continue, right? Because they saw it as one democratic administration to another. That's not how my father saw it. My father saw it as the preceding governor had opposed him and had gone with Koch. So he had no 
fealty to the uh, incumbent administration. And he made wholesale changes. Uh, and I was the transition director who actually implemented that. And plus, it's always a lot easier to uh, dislike the son than dislike <laughs> the governor. You know, nobody likes to say, I hate the governor. But it's a lot easier to say it's his kid who's a pain in the hiney. You, uh, but you got out of there after a while. You, 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 you got a law degree. Presumably you, you also wanted to get out of there. And maybe you needed to get out of there. And you, you know, a few years later, you, you got really deeply involved in the issue of homelessness. And I was wondering why that was. What, 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 what drew you to that issue and the, the building of um, facilities for transitional housing for the homeless? That became your mission for years. I backed into it, David. I was practicing law. I had a good buddy of mine who said, who was working in a homeless organization. This is when homelessness was just starting in the 80s. And homelessness was, uh, homelessness was always a single male issue. In the 80s is when the real housing shortage started to hit. Uh, and it was becoming a family issue, and primarily women and children. Uh, and this was an entirely new problem. And uh, government started using welfare hotels, right? So-called welfare hotels. He took me to a place I'll never forget called the Hotel Martinique, uh, which was the most disgusting place I had ever been in. Uh, because what they did is they took hotels and they put families in these rooms. There was no kitchen. Just think of it as an old hotel room. And now you're there, a mother with three kids in one hotel room and a hot plate and extension cords all over the room uh, and the kids playing in the hall uh, and uh, people with substance abuse problems and, and uh, doing what they do to support substance abuse, performing sex acts in the hallways and in the stairwells. I mean, and children running through the midst of this. It was just, and I was uh, 20-something years old. It was just, I mean, I couldn't sleep. I remember I can still smell the smells. And uh, I said, well, this is simple. We'll, uh, my father was governor. We'll work with government. We'll build housing. We'll get the people out of this hotel, and we'll put them in the housing. And it was supposed to be uh, one project that I was going to do. And it turned out to be a lot harder and a lot more complicated than I thought. And I spent uh, six years doing it, built more housing for the homeless than any organization in the nation, uh, went from building one place to building about 12, uh, went from two employees to having over 500 employees, and we housed uh, 6,000 people on any given night. Uh, largest organization for families in the country. So uh, it was it was supposed to be just uh, again it was the na naivete. This is relatively simple. Let's build a hundred units of housing and empty this hotel, and uh, it went on from there. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
And now, back to the show. Around that same period, you got married. You married Carrie Kennedy, a daughter of Robert Kennedy. I want to ask you about all the particulars of the relationship. You had you had three. You have three daughters uh, together. That marriage ended unhappily uh, some years later. And like often happens when you're a public figure, uh, the details don't stay private. Um, and I'm wondering about that aspect of public life. Uh, you know, that was a storybook w- wedding, and it got covered as such, People Magazine stuff. But so was the end of it. And that has to be awfully hard, particularly for, for your kids. That is the price you pay, my friend, when you walk into the theater. Uh, talk about being prepared for public life, elected life. Uh, that's one of the situations you have to consider. Uh, you subject yourself to scrutiny and publicity, and uh, I lived with it for a long time. Uh, but then you bring your children into it. People around you are affected. Uh, but it's a price you pay. And if you're not willing to pay that price, don't enter the theater. Don't enter the arena. Uh, and yeah. it is hard. It's a, it, it's a price you pay, but 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 what has to be more painful is it's the price when, when your kids have to pay the price as well. And that is exactly right. But yeah, it's a family pass that you buy. Uh, you can't protect them from it. Uh, your children become subject to that same kind of public scrutiny and it's terrible and it's lousy and it's ugly. Uh, but it's also real. You, you served for eight years in Washington. I think you're, your experience on housing led to this. You worked at, at HUD and ultimately four years as Secretary of Housing and Urban, Urban Deve- Development uh, during the Clinton years. You came back and you ran for governor. You ran for the position your father had held. Uh, he lost, by the way, in 1994 after three terms. I should have asked you this earlier. How painful was it when he lost that election for him and how painful was it for you? Devastated him. He lost in 94. 94 was the Gingrich year. It was the first Clinton midterm. It was after gays in the military, etc. And uh, the it was the Gingrich revolution. Uh, we lost a lot of seats. My father lost in 94. Devastating for him. Devastating for me because I had been in, had gone to Washington. So I wasn't available to help him. So I blamed myself for not being available to to help. Uh, my father never saw it coming. He was prepared on election night to give a victory speech. He had written the speech. We're in a hotel suite and he uh, goes into the bedroom. He's laying on the bed and he has the speech on his chest. He's fully dressed in his suit and he's going through the speech in his mind. Tim Russert, God rest his soul. Yes. Who, Work for your dad. Uh, I had, who I had talked into coming on to my f- father's first administration the first year, Timmy and I worked together, called up and he said, uh, the network is about to call it and say uh, that your father lost. And I had to walk in and tell my father that he, and I couldn't even tell him that he lost. I opened the door to the bedroom and he just looked at me and I didn't say anything. And he said, uh, what's wrong? And I didn't say anything. And he said, what's wrong? I said, we're going to need a different speech. 
That's all I said. Mm-hmm. And so he was crushed. I was crushed. Then I ran for governor, as you mentioned, and lost. And then we were both crushed for many yeah. years together. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure for him that was reliving in some ways uh, what happened in uh, uh, in 94. But you came back, you ran for attorney general. That's when you and I worked together. I have one question on the AG's office. You, you did... You did some very uh, positive things there, including uh, ex- uh, uh, a lawsuit to prevent the exploitation of, of students and student loans. And uh, uh, Tell me about the power of that office uh, and in the context of some of the, these lawsuits that are now pending in investigations of the Trump organization that now become, you know, a real... Uh, a real deal uh, for them uh, as he as he leaves the White House. Um, what 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 is it? What what powers are there in that office and in the Manhattan DA's office that are should be troubling to Trump? Oh, I've if I'm Donald Trump, I'm very worried. Uh, the New York Attorney General's office. Uh, has both civil and criminal uh, jurisdiction. They're in charge of charities, and that's one of the things they're in charge of is charities, and that's what they're pursuing uh, with him is his his charitable organization. The Manhattan DA's office is working on a tax fraud case. Uh, I don't have any inside information. Right, of course. uh, From what I discern, they're working on a tax fraud case. Uh, And when you have people like Michael Cohen out there who was intimately involved in a lot of dealings uh, with Donald Trump, uh, who was orchestrating a lot of uh, payments for him. Uh, how did you, how did you, uh, you, you made a payment to a woman. Uh, did you deduct that payment? Did you call it a business expense? You know, uh, I'd be very worried if I was Donald Trump. Just returning to your story, you ran for governor in 2000. And ten, you, you've now served th- three terms, uh, or you're in the midst of your uh, your third term. It's had peaks and valleys. You know, you talk about infrastructure. You've done a lot of it. In fact, you just dedicated a bridge uh, that uh, was named for your dad, uh, spanning the Hudson uh, to New Jersey to replace the Verrazano Bridge. And you've done, you mentioned the airport and Second Avenue subway and all of this. Um, you've done, you, you uh, passed, um, you were one of the early adopters of uh, same-sex marriage in, in your state. Uh, you've mentioned some of the other things that you've done. Um, all, all to the good. And there've been some down uh, moments. You, you created a commission to go after ethics violations in the state, and there were plenty to go after. You had to close it down after a couple of months um, because it was headed into directions that were uncomfortable. And and one of your closest aides, someone I know well, was uh, convicted on a, in a, in a bribery uh, case. Tell me um, about these last 10 years and the highs and lows for you. The high is New York has passed more progressive legislation than any state in the United States of America. 
period, from free college tuition to marriage equality to the most aggressive environmental program, most aggressive green program, et cetera. Uh, we've done more building and more construction than ever, uh, as you mentioned, bridges, airports, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So we've gotten more things done for people. Government has worked and made a difference in people's lives. Uh, the downsides uh, that you mentioned, close aide, close friend of mine, uh, got convicted, uh, not of taking state money, but of uh having outside income that was unreported, basically, to put it Mm -hmm. in layman's terms. Uh, And that uh, was very difficult for me. Uh, And it was a complicated case. He had been in state government, left, uh, had clients when he left, then came back. So it was a complicated situation, but that really, really hurt uh, and hurt him and his family, et cetera. So that was both uh, personal and professional. On the other, uh, painful. On the other hand, uh, during that situation, it was a very aggressive prosecutor who went through everything uh, on every level. And uh, uh, that was the one person that he found anything on. And after 10 years, people are going to make mistakes and you hope that nobody does. But uh, that one hurt. The Ethics Commission uh, was is more complicated than you portrayed. The Ethics Commission was because I wanted to get an ethics bill done by the legislature, uh, which I actually did get passed by the legislature. Uh, and that was the point of that exercise. The real low point, I think, if anything, was just the there's a tremendous personal cost it's time it's seven days a week it's less time with your family less time with your girls less time to travel less time to see friends Mm -hmm. uh so that it's it's that cost i think uh that is probably sounds like you came by you came by that naturally uh yes i did yes i did and and at the end of the day, David, I am fair. I'm fine with the trade. Uh, I believe yeah. we've we've uh, changed life for the better for millions of people. I believe during this COVID situation, we saved thousands of lives. But uh, there's always a price, uh, and you give up a lot to be in public service. So in this book, uh, uh, Leadership Lessons uh, from the COVID-19 Pandemic American Crisis, what, what, what is the principal lesson that you've learned? And you made mistakes that, that, uh, in this as well. Everybody was feeling their way at the beginning, but much has been made of the fact that, you know, at first it wasn't clear how serious it was. Then when it was, you, you, you thought, housing some of these patients in nursing homes would be the right thing to do. It turned out not to be the right thing to do. You also did a lot of things right and became, in certain ways, the narrator for America through this process. Um, all of America listening to your briefings each day. What, what's the most important thing that you learned from the crisis? Most important thing I learned is we don't know what we're talking about and we don't know what we're dealing with and the federal government is incompetent, and we should have seen this coming. 
You had SARS 20 years ago. You had MERS in 2012. Uh, why didn't the federal government learn from that? Uh, why weren't we better prepared? This is a virus that came from China. Uh, the COVID came from China. So did MERS, so did SARS. MERS, SARS, COVID, all coronaviruses. MERS, SARS, COVID, all came from a wet market in China. MERS, SARS, COVID, all uh, spread globally without detection of the World Health Organization, CDC, and IH. Uh, there were no regional stockpiles. We didn't have masks. We didn't have gowns. We didn't have the manufacturing capacity to do it. The reason New York got hurt so hard was the virus left China and went to Europe and was traveling to New York from Europe for three months before anyone said anything uh, because the federal government was totally asleep at the switch. Uh, that's uh, the, the lack of competence killed people. And it's the first time since World War II that government actually had to perform something big and fast. And we just didn't have the capacity to do it, and we didn't have the leadership to do it, and we didn't have the skill to do it. And there's going to be a next time. And I hope we learn from this time for the next time. On your point about the uh, nursing homes, that's actually not what happened. That is the Michael Caputo view of, our, view of what happened. Do you know who Michael Caputo is, David? I do, and I'm not taking this as a compliment. I know. I didn't mean it that way. He I know. was <laughs> he was the HHS spokesperson. I didn't even realize that until they fired him. He was the spokesperson for Health and Human Services. And he put out this narrative, not just on New York, on all Democratic governors. People died in nursing homes. And it's the fault of the Democratic governors, because remember, early on, it was all the Democratic states. Yes. That was a pure political narrative. It's a total, they did said it about Illinois, they said it about New Jersey, they said it about all the Democratic states. Uh, no, people in nursing homes died because that's where COVID uh, preys, unfortunately. Uh, and the way the COVID got into the nursing homes was we were told by the federal government that the only spread was from symptomatic people. If you remember, you had to sneeze, you had to cough on someone. That was wrong. There was asymptomatic spread. And the staff was infected and went to work in the nursing home and they walked in COVID. They had no symptoms, but they, it was asymptomatic spread. And that happened for months before we knew there was any such thing as asymptomatic spread. And it happened for months before we had any chance to do anything because the only chance is really to do testing, but then you need large scale testing. Now we test every nursing home worker every week before they go to work. When testing started, David, the state of New York, I could only do 500 tests per day. That was the maximum number that we could do. We have 100,000 nursing home workers, 100,000. I could do 500 tests a day. <laughs> let, me, let me just finish uh, uh, back with your dad for a second. One of the most poignant 
things that I know about you is that the day that you took the oath of office in New York for your second term as governor, he passed away. He passed away while you were giving your inaugural address uh, upstate. I'm wondering, he never, uh, he never served a fourth term. He tried. He never ran for president, never chose to run for president, though many people urged him. Do you see yourself uh, doing those things, and are you urged on by his example? I, I'm in the best place I think I've been uh, on a personal level and professional level. I don't need anything, David. Uh, I've overcome more obstacles than I thought I would ever face in my life. I've been up, I've been down, I've been decked by the hardest punch you can take. Uh, and it's liberating at one point, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm very proud of what I've accomplished here. I'm proud of my record. I'm proud of the people I've helped and how I've done it. So I don't have a need. I'm not driven by, well, I really need to be president. I need this. I need uh, to break my father's record. How stupid is that? Three terms versus four terms. I mean, I, I'm not in competition with my father. Uh, and if that was, a, there's no competition in number of terms. So I don't have any need. Uh, I, I believe I make a positive contribution as governor. I believe I handled COVID well. I believe COVID has more to do. I believe we're then going to have years of rebuilding New York. And I think uh, my experience can help the people of New York. They decide that they can do better, then they will elect someone else. I have no desire to go back to Washington. I was a HUD secretary, I was in the cabinet, been there, done that. Uh, I have no desire, no ego to, uh, well, I, I need to achieve uh, being president. Uh, I just, I don't, I don't have that need, and I mean need in an unhealthy sense. Yeah. You know, I think, especially in politics, you have a lot of egos that are desperate. They're just desperate for affirmation. Yeah. They need affirmation. Well, Those and let's be honest, there was, uh, I'm not sure you would have answered that question the same way uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, you know, you're a person of of, of, of big ambitions, uh, you, you know, so if, if in fact that you've reached that moment of, uh, of, uh, of peace, um, that's a, that's a, an accomplishment worth, uh, worth noting and congratulating you for, because it makes life better. Yeah. I know you're almost out of time. This is one time. Ambition is a good thing. I'm ambitious for my state. I want to rebuild it better than ever before. Uh, and there, there was a point in my life, I was talking to my daughters about this, uh, 25, 25 and 23 yeah. uh, years old. Uh, you, you know, you, there is a point where you, you want to know who you are and how good you are and what goals you should set for yourself and where is your spot in, on the, this planet, you know? Uh, 
And you have to go through that. It can be hard and it can be painful and you can push yourself too hard and you can stumble and you can fall and life is going to knock you on your tuchus uh, <laughs> sooner or later anyway. Uh, but, uh, and I went through all that. Uh, and I am at a place of peace and comfort. And uh, I do feel... I do feel good where I am, and I do feel that I'm doing the right thing, you know. And then life, uh, men plan, right? God laughs. And then life <laughs> will decide something else tomorrow, and yeah. then we'll deal with that. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that, and uh, really appreciative for the time. Andrew Cuomo, great to be with you. Good to be with you. Always a pleasure, David. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.